What, what do you need? With the sound of music. Can we record that for the podcast? <laughs> the duet. The new, we're announcing a new girl group tonight. <laughs> I'm the gay one. There's always a gay one in a girl group. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Bishopsgate Institute. Uh, absolutely thrilled to have this event here tonight, celebrating the launch or the handover of the archive. We were always here to the Bishopsgate. I uh, just want to say to the panel what an incredible achievement the podcast was. Absolutely amazing. So to celebrate that is our absolute joy. Can't wait to look after the archive either. I'm Steph. I get to look after all the archives here, and hopefully some of you have been and visited. Yeah, hands up, hands up. Good. If not, why not? Uh, I expect excuses later. But for those of you who don't know, Bishopsgate Institute is an incredible place. Been here 120 years. Unfortunately, not collecting LGBTQ plus history for 120 years, but we have since 2011. And we're now one of the largest collections documenting and celebrating LGBTQ plus histories. So we're absolutely thrilled to accept the interviews from this podcast, which is going to be a huge and amazing addition to the collections. We have a lot of the major organisations archives here, but we also collect slightly different here, and it's about individual voices and people's stories as well. Uh, everyone, every one of us should be celebrated, and we do that in the archives here. So uh, I always say this as well. Uh, if any of you do have archives, do come and see me. We have a box your size waiting to put you in, uh, but also to celebrate you as well and your life and stories as well. So I'm not going to say much more apart from enjoy tonight, come back and see us at the Institute. We have lots of wonderful archives, as I said, but events that take place as well as tonight. Uh, and just have a fun time and uh, enjoy it. But I shall hand over to the wonderful Anna and Mark, who are much more interested than me. So I think a round of applause is in order. Can we actually have a round of applause for these outfits? So like every time I turn around, I feel underdressed. Hi everyone, thank you so much for coming tonight. It really means a lot to us. For anyone that doesn't know me, my name is Hannah Walker-Brown. I am the creative director of Broccoli Productions and the producer and sound designer of We Were Always Here, the podcast, which I hope you've listened to. That's what we're going to kind of talk about tonight. If you haven't, this might be a very weird conversation. Um, it'll all make sense. And then you should go back and listen to it and rate it five stars on Apple because it really helps with our algorithm. And I'm just going to start this by saying it's kind of our mission at Broccoli as a company, but also as individuals, has always been to tell the stories that empower and to use this kind of the, the insane privilege of having a platform responsibly to make sure that the unheard voices and untold stories are amplified and reaching the people that they need to reach. And this podcast was kind of no exception to that. And I think now more than ever, you know, we're living in an increasingly unsettled world. We have an absolutely abhorrent Tory government. Please, if there's any Tories in here, the door is right there. Um, <laughs> And it's never been more important to support our communities, to step up and in for our communities, but also to celebrate and to uplift. So I think as much as tonight is going to be, there's some heavy stuff, there's some serious stuff, but I think ultimately we also want to kind of cultivate some joy. So there is a free bar, 
There will also be free food. If you stay till the end, you'll get fed. Um, and I think that's kind of it for housekeeping. The fire exits are... Mark, can you do your... Yeah? Here, here, and here. And I will introduce everybody properly when we kind of get to chatting, but it's a pleasure to be here with Sophie Strachan, Angelina Amoeba, and a man who probably needs no introduction, but I'm going to give you a massive one anyway, um, which is really impressive, and I've written it down because you sent me one because I got it wrong the first time. <laughs> Mr. Mark Thompson is one of the UK's leading HIV, AIDS, and queer black men's health campaigners. He has a rich history of community organizing and engagement, co-founding Big Up in the late 1990s to respond to the sexual health needs of black queer men, running the National HIV Prevention Program for Gay Men whilst at the Terence Higgins Trust in the noughties, developing and leading Positively UK's National Peer Mentor Program, Project 100, until June 2018, co-founding Prepster in 2015 and Blackout UK the following year. In 2018, alongside Dr. Will Nutland, who's here with his lovely merch stand in the corner, shout out Will. Oh yeah, round of applause for Will. <laughs> you love it. Uh, he co-founded the Love Tank, of which he is now the co-director. Woof, got it all in. So before we hear a clip from the podcast, can you just tell everyone what We Were Always Here is about? Yeah, thank you, Hannah. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of blown away to be here at Bishopsgate and to be putting these recordings here. It's incredibly important to be able to add to the national story. And I think that, that's why tonight is really important. So We Were Always Here is a series, documentary series, podcast produced with myself and Hannah Walker-Brown with Broccoli Productions, which tells the story of the HIV epidemic in the UK through unheard voices specifically people of color, women, trans people, sex workers, but also volunteers, clinicians, people that worked within organizations. And as we'll discuss later on, and I'll go into more detail, but my motivation was to add to that really rich story that we already have. And as many of us in the past couple of years have been celebrating, marking the 40th anniversary of the kind of the first cases of HIV related illness in the United States and the work that many of us have done, it was timely to tell those stories. And I think that what the podcast does, as you said, Hannah, it not only reminds us of the real terror, the real hurt, the real pain that we went through, but it also tells us about the joy, community, love, fun. There was some amazing, dirty, Wild Yours, your, your short, your hot pants story. Yeah, my hot pants story. In the club. In the club. Yeah, my short shorts. Um, it's episode two, I think. I think so it is for episode later. two, and I no longer can fit into <laughs> the shorts. Thank you, COVID. Um, but yeah, it's, it's in a really wonderful, rich story, which tells us where we went from, how we got here, but it's filled with love, and that's what runs all the way through it. So I would ask if you haven't listened to it, to listen to it. And if you have listened to it, go back and listen to it again, because there's some really rich texture in there for you to enjoy. And speaking of rich texture, we're going to play some now. Um, I would suggest maybe close your eyes if you feel comfortable, maybe put both feet on the floor, settle in. We're going to play an extended clip from the podcast just to give you a kind of idea of the breadth of stories and some of the voices. Um, it's a few minutes long, so yeah, get comfortable. I, you know, I keep going back to that, that kid, that, that boy, um, who was a boy, 
there's not, no two ways about it. This was not a grown ass man. This was a, this was a kid. And thinking about what I would tell my younger self and all of those questions and all the rest of it. And looking back over this process and thinking about the journey that we've got on. And I've been, I did this thing recently where I visualized literally going back to and sitting on the edge of the bed and talking to my younger self. And my younger self going, dad, <laughs> what are you doing there? And actually me going, no, it's, it's me, your 52 year old self. And me telling him about this and to just hold tight. You're not gonna remember this in the morning when you wake up, but this is gonna be an incredible roller coaster ride. But I'm inspired by this journey and also all the people that I've spoken to. They're just they're fucking amazing. They are fucking incredible people that have taken part in this and shared their lives and their stories. And I'm so grateful for them taking part in this, but also for absolutely everything that they've done for this. These are our foot soldiers. I say this all of the time. These are the people that got us from A to where we are today. people from that time, you all know this, we've lived through this moment in history. We've lived through this before. And it was a damn sight more scary for us then because no fucker cared if we lived or died. No one cared. So there was no one out clapping. There was no one putting a banner out or a rainbow out. People were writing headlines like, ship them off and shoot them. And we explained to this guy what we were thinking of doing finding a house and converting them. And he said to us, you know, it's very expensive to convert a house into rooms. It'd be cheaper to build something. Oh. So we said, <laughs> so we said, <laughs> well, we're gonna get money to build something. And he said, you go find the land, we'll build it for you. I mean, <laughs> I remember coming out of that meeting and we're hugging ourselves. <laughs> and it did come to, to pass. That's an amazing achievement, Arnold, to, to, yeah. to be able to provide homes and housing for people. I mean, you must be so proud of that. We were, indeed. We were, we were very proud. I think, you know, looking back now, at the time, I never thought of it as help, just helping people. But then later on, as I say, it grew and grew, and it became quite one of the biggest um, charities helping black people in South London. And um, so I was very proud of that. I'm one final question. It's a final one. I'm asking this of everybody. Because time has passed, and we are older, and we are wiser now. You go back to 1990, that young Ugandan woman is about to get on the plane and go back to Uganda. She's said to herself, I'm going back to die. 
with all this wisdom and this knowledge and this advocacy and all the things you've learned, I've taken you back. Mm-hmm. She's about to get on that plane. What are you going to say to her? Don't give up. There's a beautiful life to be had. And you shouldn't miss out on that. a bit emotional listening to that we've done so it feels like we were doing interviews for like 19 years through the pandemic um but I just want to start Mark this all started thank you so much for sitting quietly everyone that was like a really beautiful moment everyone with their eyes closed listening um so this started you sent me an email we were already working together on something else and you were like I've got this idea and you you wanted to ask my advice on where you should pitch it and I read it, and I was like, don't you dare send that anywhere else. <laughs> I was like, I am making that with you. Um, can you just tell me a little bit about that pitch and kind of the reason behind you wanting to collect these stories or tell it from this perspective? Yeah, sure. So I'd rewind just a little bit to, say, 2017, 2018. And I'd started to go to a number of events, and there was a lot happening, which was remembering the HIV narrative from the 80s. And I would go to these events and I would invariably be the only person of color and there were very few women there. And I got that the narrative needed to be told from a particular perspective, but I, I knew having lived through this that there were so many other stories, that it, it was so rich and these voices were just not being heard. And so I kind of pulled together an oral history project, which was gonna be kind of going out and getting young people to record with other people. And then you and I started to work on the Anthems project and I was like, this is a podcast, because I love podcasts. So I kind of, as, as anybody that knows me, I had a shower, this idea popped into my head, and I was like, ah, yes, a very British epidemic. Then COVID happened, that was a shit title, so that went out the window. But what I wanted to do was not only tell the stories from unheard voices, but I also wanted to tell our narrative from the UK, because our response was informed by the fact that we were on this island, that we have an NHS, that we are smaller, it was very different to the US epidemic, that um, our way we mobilize is slightly different, you know, and the way that communities connect was slightly different. So I wanted to see what the British attitude to sex, to community, to sexuality, to gender meant, and how did that impact the series? So I kind of wrote this outline, I think it was nine or 10 episodes, really, really clear, I want you to look at this, I want you to look at that, I want you to look at that, and then I send it over to you, and like, aha, let's cut this back a bit, Mark. And I was like, thank God I've got a good editor and a good producer. And then we just started to roll with it, and I started to identify people, and because I've worked in the sector for 30 odd years, I knew a lot of good folk. And so it's kind of easy to start reaching out to people, and they trusted me as well, you know, they're like, actually, yeah, I trust you with this story. So I was really grateful for that. And then we just started rolling with it. But I think ultimately it was unheard voices, the people that I'd worked with, the women that I'd loved. I spent some time at Positively UK from 2012 to 2019. And that was the first time in my entire career that I'd really worked with women with HIV. And they taught me so much. And I was like, those stories need to be heard by other people. Mm. 
And you were diagnosed with HIV at 17. You were living in Brixton with your mum, who you also meet throughout the podcast, who's an absolute legend, despite the worst Wi-Fi connection. The Zoom is like, I mean, we put it in because it was just so ridiculous, like how bad that connection was when, you know, what can you do? Um, Your sister's there as well. Your dad was there for a time. You had your entire life ahead of you. And then this deadly disease emerges that's killing gay men and that life kind of is seemingly, or it looks like it's going to be ripped away. You describe it as uh, a death sentence. Can you just kind of describe that world you're living in and what um, information, you know, whether it's about sex or whether it's about HIV is available to a young black man in that scenario? Yeah. So, I I mean, I think the first thing is the world more broadly, particularly in this country, was deeply homophobic. It was very racist. It was grey. It was miserable. Thatcher was still in government. The Tories, it feels like today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wait, what? (laughs) Um, Damn, we really haven't moved on. We haven't moved on. We haven't moved just a little. But the Tories in government, it it, it felt really uncomfortable. And coming out, my parents were really concerned about me because of the world that I was entering into. Then I came out into a small black queer community and I've described it as a village rather than a city. So it was really closed, you know, really tight, but the wider world was really dangerous. So getting a diagnosis at that time was really frightening because you felt really alone. And to answer the second part of your question, there was no information for me as a young black gay man. There was information which was slowly coming out. I think THT had just started to put some information out. They put out their first leaflet, which was great. But because I was so young, I wasn't seeing that information. My friends weren't picking up that information. So the sex that I was having, the way that I was kind of evaluating my risk was based on the fact that that's over there. It has no relation to me at all. So when I was diagnosed, it was complete and utter shock. And so what did you do with that? How did that kind of inform how you dealt with a diagnosis? Or did you? I mean, for a really long time, I didn't. I was really angry. I was really hurt. And I think anybody who's received a HIV diagnosis will understand the sense of loss that you feel, the sense of isolation. You are completely in this on your own. But this was also at a time where there was a real threat of physical, emotional violence towards me. So, And I experienced that as well so all of those things made one retreat into a shell so I was angry for many many years but I turned that anger into work yeah I read your bio that's a lot of <laughs> that's some work that's a lot of anger <laughs> yeah that's a lot of anger um and I want to kind of just move away from that for a moment and kind of bring you guys into the conversation shortly you're sitting so patiently wait looking so beautiful um, because one of the parallels that we heard in that clip as well, Juno describes it kind of, we've lived through this epidemic before, and that's in reference to COVID, but there's no one, you know, during the HIV epidemic, there was no one clapping, there was no one in the streets. It was kind of, it was really wrapped up with kind of shame and with stigma. And I think that's not just kind of directed towards a queer community, but it was weaponizing sex as well. And I think even now I find it astonishing that we still have a warning for sex in the same sentence as extreme violence before a TV show. Not violent sex, but any sex. There's a kind of, you know, prerequisite. This contains sex. So I think that's wrapped up in how we understand sex and intimacy. And what I wanted to ask you about was how that impacted you because you're 17, not just from a kind of sex perspective, but touch because for a long time, there was that whole thing about wearing gloves, like you can't touch anyone. Like, how do you reconcile that? 
I mean, for a long time, it put a barrier between me becoming intimate, developing relationships, or going to a certain point. So you'd meet somebody, you'd get involved, and you'd be like, whoa, the questions come in, time to duck and get out of here. So, plus I was, you know, a serial monogamous, so there was all of that. But I would be <laughs> in and out of relationships because I was so shit scared of telling anybody about my HIV. So I think that had a big impact on developing. And But I think what I did was to educate and teach myself so I could inform others and pass my message on. Mm. Which you do now, every day, in all the work that you're doing. And just one final thing that I wanted to touch on before I speak to Angelina is you're a massive advocate for joy. Your big thing is black boy joy in particular. You say it in the podcast, it's all over your flat. It's how you kind of present to the world. Your energy is joy. And in within this series, like even with kind of um, Arnold talking about creating you know the biggest black housing space in south london and he's so proud and there's so much kind of joy within that that was really important for you in this podcast when we spoke were those narratives is that because they were missing or what other things were kind of leading you to that decision that meant we have this kind of rich tapestry of the whole experience i mean it wasn't my intention you know i kind of entered into this podcast thinking oh my god these stories going to be really sad and it's going to be doom and it's going to be gloom and everybody's going to be really upset and everybody i interviewed i would go in and i would say look this is going to be tough if you want to breathe up because i expect you to cry every single conversation i had there was laughter mm. there was some story there was somebody recollecting oh we would finish this and the story about somebody's false teeth falling out bungee jumping <laughs> yeah. you know there was there was things like that We'd it was go a patient down. a patient on an aids ward and they said you you know they gave everyone like one last thing they could do almost like a you know last meal on death row and it was a nurse, and she'd said to this guy, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to go bungee jumping. And they're like, all right, like, we have to, to do it. Jumping. And his false teeth fell out. Yeah. And they had a photo of it, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> and, but the, the, and the reason I wanted to include all of that stuff in there, as it came out quite organically throughout the interviews, was I wanted people to remember that in the really dark times, it is joy that sustains us. Mm. It is happiness. It is looking next to the person that you're working with in the office as you're packing condom packs, as you're taking that really distressing call, as you're holding somebody's hand when they die, it's when you go back and you're able to turn to your colleague and find some joy in that moment mm. that motivates you to go to the next day, to deal with the next crisis, the next drama. And I wanted to reflect that throughout because there were some joyful moments in the darkest times. Mm. I read a great quote, and I don't know who said it, but the quote was, joy is the justice we give ourselves. And I thought that was kind of, that sort of says, wraps it up nicely. Um, thank you, Mark. You can be quiet for a moment now. No, join in. Um, Angelina Namiba, absolute pleasure to have you. I'm now going to read your very impressive, extensive bio. So this is Angelina. She has over 24 years experience of working in the HIV sector on different initiatives, ranging from providing one-to-one -one support to people living with HIV, treatment advocacy, managing service delivery, to facilitating, promoting, and advocating for the involvement of women living with HIV, informing and informing local and national strategy and policy. She is passionate about the sexual reproduction health and rights of women living with HIV and enabling good quality of life for young people living with HIV, and has supported them around various issues and coping strategies, including HIV treatment, literacy, and general well-being around living with HIV. Her special area of interest is HIV and pregnancy. 
She's the founder member of 4M Network, a peer mentoring project working with mentor mothers living with HIV, where the MMs, Ms or the Ms, MMs, 4Ms, are trained to support their peers around their pregnancy journey and beyond. She is the lead author of the 4M Mentor Mother Training Manual to train other women living with HIV as mentor mothers. Where did you get that? Ooh, I don't know, the internet. <laughs> What? <laughs> All right, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but first we're going to hear a little clip of you in the podcast. Gosh, so um, my name is Angelina Namiba and I am a woman. <laughs> Not prepared because Mr. Here wouldn't send me any questions, so I have absolutely no clue what I'm going to be talking about. <laughs> I'll stop making those faces because you know you can Okay, I'm going to start again. My name is Angelina Namiba and I am a, well, I am originally from Kenya, but I've lived in the UK for more than half my life. I was diagnosed very soon after I had, luckily, after I had graduated from university. So I was just at that point whereby, you know, I'm young, free, single, looking forward to a future, a bright future. And, um, then I was diagnosed. So for me, I always say lucky because it really struck me hard. Because in those days, as you will know, Mark, um, when you're given a diagnosis, for many people, it was a thing of, you know, you probably have six months to live or maybe a few years if you're lucky. So you would have been, I mean, how, I mean, how old were you? I, mean? I was in my, my mid-20s. And so I just thought, my goodness, it was really, really hard. I'm not even going to lie to you. But I think what made it harder for me was that my own brother had also been diagnosed uh, with HIV. And he had, um, he passed away a year, I think a year after I was diagnosed. And we were seeing a lot of people um, dying from, you know, AIDS-related illnesses, you know, like PCP pneumonia, etc. That's what was around and when I was diagnosed. And so you can imagine the havoc that it played on my mind as a young woman. And also what I felt was because it took me a while to actually get in touch with other people living with HIV, other women. At that point, I felt as if I was the only woman in London living with HIV. Angelina. Hi. Hello. Hi. So I think something that I find really striking about, you know, your bio, which is incredible, and the thing you said in that clip about being the only woman in London with HIV and all the work that you've then gone on to do for women, I want to just talk a little bit about that diagnosis and how you were feeling and what was happening around you at that time that made you think that you were completely isolated, I suppose. So, I mean, for me, because I didn't know anybody at, the t at that time who'd been diagnosed, I kind of felt I was the only woman because, in a way, I remember one of the things that is more or less seared in my mind or imprinted in my mind is a photograph of Freddie Mercury on the cover of one of the red tops when he died. <clears throat> and so that was the image that was in my mind and the fear that that instilled in me because then I thought, okay, that's where I'm heading. And I talked a bit about it um, in the podcast about my brother because what I was also seeing around was media images of people living with HIV who were dying, who were emaciated, who were poor. You know, basically, it was just... And sadly, it was, it was close to me because my brother then, he was diagnosed a year before me, but he was what you'd call a um, 
perfect case study mm. um, because he had TB, he had meningitis, he had Kaposi's sarcoma, he had epileptic fits, and he spent uh, the last part of his life between the lighthouse, um, the broad report, and he finally died in, uh, in the mild May. So that's what I was seeing at the time, but also I'd already started, when I, after what I feel was very lucky for me was just out of the blue, you know, a friend of mine uh, just told me, Angelina, I have something to tell you. Um, and I said, you know, what, what is it? And she told me I have HIV and I went, yes. Because uh, I thought, because up to that point, I hadn't <laughs> yeah, yeah. met any other woman living with HIV. And so I hadn't told anybody at the point, so I told her. And so mm. she took me to a support group. Um, so then what I was also seeing around that time was friends, colleagues dying. So you were going to you had funerals almost every other week. But you went knowing that that's where I'm headed. Mm. So that's what I was seeing at the time. Did you speak to your brother about your diagnosis? So that's one thing I've always regretted. Mm. I never really talked much about it. He told, told the family about us and we were fine about it. But I found it very hard to say anything, not just to him, but to my family at the time, because I thought I don't really want to put them through what we've just been through with my brother mm. being ill and then dying, and then again telling them that, okay, because I was the last born, so I'm also headed that way. So I never really said anything much until much later on. But I kind of, I wonder whether that could have made any difference. But yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's a lot to carry on your own. So yeah. much. And I think you, you sort of hinted at it there with your yes. But there's one thing kind of being upfront about in order to kind of get treatment or support like medically but I think actually it's peer support and community and if you're keeping everything to yourself then you don't have that but actually how invaluable that is to have people in your corner or to have people around you and I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about that and a little bit about Positively Women. So I will start with that friend of mine who kind of became a catalyst in my life because without her telling me her status I don't think I'll be here today. Wow. Um, so then, um, for me, in terms of, um, it's, it's really hard to put my thoughts together <laughs> because I kind of, I go back to that, to that time. But in terms of uh, peer support, so she took me to a group where I met about five or so other women mm. who are living with HIV and just seeing other women living, thriving, just one of them I think was a mom, another one was working but they were just doing regular stuff. So that's what gave me the kind of drive to start to volunteer. Mm. And then getting to Positively Women, that's actually when I came into my own. So seeing women who looked like me, people who looked like me, who were working, they were facilitating groups, they were supporting others. But what really helped me at Positively Women was, okay, yes, I was supporting women, but I was also getting support from mm. my colleagues and from my peers. And that was, that was incredibly important. But I don't want to forget there was another kind of support that I received very much earlier on. Um, that friend of mine took me to a support group, I remember, at a place called Body Positive. And that place was mainly um, most of the people who went there were gay men. And those men just took us in, you know, because they already had been through the whole rigmarole of coping with the diagnosis and dealing with their friends dying. So when we came along, the three or four women that were coming along at that time, they just embraced us and they supported us because they had the tools to do that. 
And for me, seeing people who are living with HIV, supporting others, I guess I got my bug for doing support way back then. And I guess all of that kind of informed the work that you've done and continues to do. Is there anything kind of from that time that made you go, ah, this is, this is what I need to do? Gosh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I didn't say that um, one of the things that really, really inspired me about Positively Women was the fact that working in a place whereby the organization was started by two women living with HIV. And the way they started was a very humble way. Uh, they just uh, wrote handwritten flyers, which they photocopied and sent out to mm. clinics whereby women who are diagnosed could be given. And the fact that that is how the organization started by this group of women who were very, very passionate because there was nothing specifically for women at the time. So working in an organization like that which, with very humble beginnings to where we were, by the time I started working in 1996, we had offices, you know, we had other staff there. And for me, that's always, it kind of set me on the path that I'm on today because the, the ethos of true and meaningful involvement of women living with HIV for me start, started there because the staff were living with HIV, we were supporting women living with HIV. Basically, it was not tokenistic. It was, mm -hmm. that's what it was about. It was, everything was for us, by us. Yeah. And that has informed the work that I do today because even at uh, Forum, it's a very small charity, but it's led by migrant women living with HIV. Or a few, small team of consultants all live with HIV. Anything that we do, any project that we work on is informed by the mental mothers. We don't just apply for a grant to do work. Mm -hmm. We say, well, what do you want us to do? And they say, we want to do this, that, and the other. So we'll apply for a grant to do what the women want to do. And then we'll involve them in doing the work. So for me, that's the impact that Positively Women had mm -hmm. on me. And I worked there for nearly 20 years on and off. I'd go and come back. And go back. <laughs> and in fact, I... <laughs> I'm really leaving now. They'd be like, she's back. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, somebody called me the ping pong of Positively Women. <laughs> But one, something that really inspired me was, you know, the handwritten flyer, one of the first, and it was framed and it used to be behind my workspace. So that oh, inspired nice. me every day that I worked at Positively Women. That's your why. It's good to remember your why. And I, I think that's so, we talk about that story of the um, flyers in the podcast with the women, one of the women that created it. Um, and I think you make a really great point about it was people helping people, doing things for people. This was before kind of government initiative came in or there was funding because there was barely any funding it was people relying on other people and I think everyone kind of stepped up and stepped in for each other which I think is really important um I just want to ask you briefly what you thought when this guy emailed to say hey can you uh, can we speak to you and hear your story oh, Mark and I go back a long way <laughs> I said yes initially because it was Mark, and you know you can't say no to Mark. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, my life won't be worth living. Um, <laughs> but really, I said yes because of what it was about—the fact that it was a podcast that was going to be about unheard voices. Mm. Because oftentimes, when you hear the story, particularly of people of color or of women, it's always the the victims. Uh, it's, also, it's always negative mm. if you're talking about HIV. And I just thought, well, we're tired of this. We want to hear the other. Yes, we went through a lot, but actually we've also contributed quite a lot. Mm. But so I just love the idea of it's going to be the unheard voices being heard properly. 
if that makes sense. Yeah. That's why I said yes. You're agreeing because she said yes. I He's mean, like, yeah, totally. Abso- <laughs> I mean, abs- absolutely. And it was a joy to kind of talk to Angelina because as Angelina said, you know, we met in the early noughties, both running two different national programs and we've worked subsequently over the years. But for me, talking to people that I've worked with, to talk about their lives, to talk about it in a different way, drew out really different narratives and stories as well. And I think that's what led some real texture to what you listen to. Mm. And I want to talk a little bit just about narrative, Angelina, because I think obviously a really prevalent narrative that we've seen forever, and especially in 2021 with things like It's a Sin, there is a predominantly white male lens through which a lot of stories are not only, you know, the, the characters we're seeing, but also who's telling those stories, kind of who's behind the camera. We don't often hear about women with HIV in any representation. And I just wanted to hear from you, what are some of the kind of issues still being faced by women or what are things that we need to be more aware of in terms of HIV and pregnancy, HIV and women? And what can we do to ensure that those stories are out there or at least we know the information? Hmm. How long have I got? (laughs) (laughs) Have you got if you can like, write it in a list and just give it to oh everyone gosh. on the door. Okay, so I think women, I'll probably leave that to Sophie so that I don't talk too much. I'll focus on my area yeah. that I'm very passionate about. So I'll, I'll focus on women living with HIV who are pregnant. So if you think about, um, I mean, things have changed, but actually if you think about, if you take the scenario of a woman diagnosed in pregnancy today, um, although things are much better, but still she's going to be thinking about coping with her diagnosis, mm-hmm. so that's one thing, but then she's gonna be worrying about how the pregnancy is going to be, is she going to carry to term? Uh, she's gonna be thinking about, am I going to pass HIV onto my baby? Uh, because depending on if they're diagnosed, she's diagnosed in pregnancy, so she didn't know about her status until then, mm-hmm. she's gonna to have to start taking treatment, so she'll be worrying about the impact of treatment both on herself and on the unborn child. Is it going to work? Am I gonna have any side effects? Uh, if she had other children before her diagnosis, she's going to be thinking about testing those children and whether they will be living with HIV as well or not. Um, then the likelihood is that because women tend to access well woman clinics and maternal care more, she's likely to be diagnosed before her partner if she's lucky enough to have one. I'm not going to say husband because not everybody's married partner or whoever it is. So then she now needs to take that diagnosis back home mm. and the impact that that would have. So some of the women we work with will have taken the, the you know, the, the, the status home, talk to their partner, then they might experience intimate partner violence, so they're having to deal with that. Then there's the issue around, um, you know, mental health issues. Mm. There's the issue of, you know, pre-postnatal depression for some. There's the issue of immigration and the poverty that comes with that and the vulnerability and the exploitation. Shall I go on? Yeah, I mean, yeah, well. (laughs) And I guess they're all things that require support. There's like medical support, obviously, but it's like psychological support and peer support is ultimately essential in times like this. It is. You've actually taken the words out of my mouth because I wanted to say, I didn't really just want to end on the negative. I wanted to also give a shout out to the power of peer support. Mm because we have absolutely excellent clinical care here in the UK and in many other countries. So in terms of the clinical staff that will be taken care of, but with our, you know, with even the best will in the world, 
I don't know one healthcare clinician who can do the psychosocial support. But peer support, particularly where mentors are trained, because of course, if you're mentoring somebody, it's not just about, oh, I, I have HIV and I was diagnosed in pregnancy as well. It's about how we're going to support them properly because supporting somebody with the same condition can trigger a lot of things. Mm. So you need to be trained and to be supported to support them properly. So peer support, I think, is incredibly invaluable. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. I'm going to come to Sophie before I ask you guys to jump in again. Um, yeah, rightly, thanks. Got the final impressive bio of the night. I should have done one of these for myself and got you to read one out, but I'm not doing half as well or as important work as the three of you are. So finally, Sophie Strachan has been an advocate for women in HIV for almost two decades, ensuring gender visibility and health equity in the HIV response and that women's sexual reproductive health and rights are achieved. She has provided policy advice to public health organizations, NHS England, NICE, NGOs, and academics, WHO and UN Women advocating both nationally and internationally. Sophie's work includes advocacy on PrEP knowledge and equality and access for all women and is the current co-chair on the London PrEP Equity Working Group and past co-chair on the Women and Other CAB Group for Public Health England's PrEP Impact Trial. Sophie is also one of the Global Reference Group members for the World Health Organization Global Survey on Sexual and Reproductive Health and Human Rights of Women Living with HIV. She is CEO of the Sophia Forum, which exists to empower all women living with HIV to reach their full potential and to ensure their voices are heard and their needs prioritized within the health sector and wider society. Her research has addressed women's experience of incarceration whilst living with HIV. Woo, can we get a round of applause for that as well? Hi Sophie, I'm gonna play um, a short clip of you in the podcast and then we'll come on to some questions. Prison saved my life and and um, what happened at some point was it suggested or advised that you go down to the sexual health service and you know it's a it's a prime opportunity for people who are living chaotic lifestyles to go down and have a sexual health screen in the same way you go to the dentist and you go to the optician or whatever. So I did and and really didn't think that much of it because because I tested the year before thought I was fine and uh, I was very very fortunate with the health advisor that I had um, she was amazing I didn't know at that time that I was going to be the first person that she gave a diagnosis to in prison and it was only years down the line that I actually learned of the very first words that I said to her when she gave me the diagnosis rather than what I remember that was just after. So apparently what I said to her in her face, shouting in her face was like, you are fucking joking. Four times, apparently. You're fucking joking. I remember the Jesus wept bit and just broke down and cried. And then within 10 minutes, I was back up in my cell. Yeah. And I didn't take any, I was scared to take any information up to my cell because you got cell spins. Mm. And within two weeks of me taking information up to my cell, which took about six months, my cell got spun. And part of one of like, 
because of the stress of being in prison, my hair was falling out badly. I lost about three quarters of my hair. So we had these tea bags, tea bag packs that you'd get every evening. I'd give them out, tea bags and biscuits and milk. And I had bags and bags and bags of hair in those tea bag bags in my drawer because the medical team was saying, hold on to it. And so when my cell got spun, they discovered the A4 envelopes would have information about HIV, tipped out onto the bed, and then they opened up the drawer. <laughs> it gets me every time. And they tipped out all the hair onto the bed. And it's like I felt naked. I felt completely stripped of everything. And I was terrified. And I was taken into the office and asked, like, what was going on? You know, why did I have these bags of hair? And and I was too terrified to tell them. They weren't horrible. <laughs> Don't get me, you know, they weren't horrible. But, like, I just felt naked. It's always a big moment. Um, I remember editing that and being sobbing and messaging you and saying this is just you know so powerful and it's I think the thing about this is you know as Angelina said as Mark said it's incredibly isolating anyway but also you're in isolation 2.0 because you're in prison so you're isolated physically and I guess also isolated psychologically and I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what that was like and how you dealt with that yeah, thank you. Um, so sorry, I just get catapulted back there every time. No, thank you for being here and for no, speaking no, no, about it's fine. it. It's fine. I just I never expect the same impact every time because I'm 20 years removed mm. from that, and and yet it still gets me every time. And I could see myself back there, but so um, yeah. It, I, okay. So when you enter prison. That's the first trauma, entering the gates. And then you deal with the immediate loss of liberty, loss of freedom, and you're dictated to when you go, not to bed, but you know, like when you're shut in your cell, the banging of the door when they wake you up, when you eat, when you toilet, when you go down to education, it's, you know, you have no say in that. Um, and so, as I said there, it's like I, I went down and got my diagnosis and within 10 minutes I was back in my cell and um, just with all these questions and you are in complete survival mode when you're in prison. And, um, and, and so... I would just walk around with this new information, but you couldn't show anything because you're in survival. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so what one of the things that I did to cope was work. I was a wing cleaner. It got me out of the cell. Um, it was an absolute saving grace. Um, and... Um, but the stress was enormous 
because you can't escape the stigma that you observe in prison. Um, and I was, I had the most amazing health advisor and I also had the support from Positively Women. I had a peer support worker, which we may come to a little bit later. Mm. I don't want to kind of answer it all now, but she would take me off the wing because of how badly I was doing. <laughs> and, um, but that in itself raised questions because they were like, why do you keep going down to healthcare? Mm. You know, so you couldn't escape anything. There was, there was no privacy and I, and I just was holding all this information. And I guess you have, it's like a double stigma because you have the stigma of prison that you have to reconcile, but now you have stigma of diagnosis that you also have to reconcile so privately so you don't let anyone else know, I guess, within that system that that's what you're going through. That's a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think the, just the HIV, I mean, everyone that's there has ended up in prison. It, it's, it's the HIV, it's just not spoken about mm. you know I, I was you know I went in on the back of a number of years of active drug addiction so I was surrounded by a lot of other drug users and that was fine you know you could banter about that I continued to use in prison for a bit you know um but the HIV was never spoken about never that, that I, I, I walked around. And, and also, you know, what I actually have never spoken about before is actually my partner was diagnosed at the same, my partner at the time was diagnosed at the same time. And he was very advanced. He was in a, he was taken out of prison into a hospital. He was in a coma for about a month and a half. And I became aware of that information and I couldn't, you know, again, that complete powerlessness and I'm in prison, no compassionate leave, I couldn't go and visit him. So I was dealing with that and all that unknown and uncertainty at the same time. So it wasn't then just about my diagnosis, it was then about him as well. And what support did you have around? You mentioned Positively Women. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and what was available to you while you were in prison and where those initiatives had come from. So Positively Women was providing peer support in Holloway Prison at that time. And I have said it, and I will say it for the rest of my life, it was an absolute lifeline. Like Angelina said, I, have, I don't know what my journey would have been like had I not been introduced to Positively Women to Maria, who would come in every fortnight, I think, or every three weeks. I spoke about everything but the HIV, because I had much bigger stuff going on, <laughs> as far as I was concerned. And also, I just, like, I didn't want to accept it, you know, because there was so much else going on. And, um, and, and, and so Maria would come in, she'd bring me tobacco, she'd bring me sweets, you know, and, and the thing that it gave, I mean, the multiple things that it gave me, but the biggest one was hope. There was a woman, she was a white woman, she'd experienced prison, she was in recovery, she was living her life, she was working, she had a child, everything that I felt I had lost at that point of diagnosis. I thought I was going to die. My, my 
immediate parallel question was, can I have children? I learned really quickly that I could. Sadly, that was something I never went on to have. But it was information that I got really quickly. And, um, and because I couldn't really take information up to my cell, as I, you know, as you heard, there was some information that I could get from her. But, you know, for that period of time when she came in, I didn't feel isolated. I could, you know, I could just talk to another woman. Um, she was so lovely, so lovely. And, and I don't know, I don't know whether you now want me to go out to when I came out of prison. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. So, <laughs> um, so one of the things is when I was in prison, I had no idea. Well, there was somebody else in prison living with HIV. Um, and um, that was one of the rumors that was spread about um, the woman who'd got AIDS. And um, none of the nurses would look after her because she was a massive self-harmer. So when she'd cut, they wouldn't go in and, and, and tend to her because she had AIDS. Um, so I never actually met her, but I heard of her. So the first time that I actually met other than Maria, was when I went to Positively UK's Christmas, Positively Women's Christmas party. They're now Positively UK. Um, I went to their Christmas party and I walked in and there were two other women who I'd been in prison with. On my landing, my landing, on the landing <laughs> that I was on, <laughs> my landing, you know, um, one of them was my next door neighbour and one of them was just down the corridor and we were all like oh my god and I was just dumbfounded it was just like and so there was that moment of joy and then there was this moment of like feeling really sad because it was like my god I could have spoken to her had I known we could have spoken if they wanted to we could have spoken we could have supported each other and yet you know for X amount of time that I was in prison, my next door neighbor, you know? Mm. So, and it was, you know, and it was, yeah. So it was so, it was so powerful. Um, yeah. Uh, because it, it is just such an enforced isolation when, when you're in prison with it. And I think, you know, even to this day, if you're in prison, have been in prison, if you take drugs, even, you know, in some spaces, if you have HIV, there's still so much shame and stigma. And in a lot of society, those people are not looked at favorably. And I think we sort of touched on this before, but, you know, not being upfront has huge ramifications on whether you seek treatment, where you seek that treatment, where you seek your support. And I think you're, you know, you've been so courageous in raising your voice and telling your story how, like, I guess we were talking about this earlier in the dressing room, because I wanted to know whether you felt you had a choice because you weren't seeing that in other spaces and you felt like you had to come forward because you're not, you know, the only person that's had your experience. Did you feel like you had to or was there like a compulsion, like you, you wanted to be upfront about this, you wanted to tell the world your story? So I knew from the moment I left prison that I wanted to ensure in some way, didn't know what that would look like, that no other woman should have to experience 
the stigma, the discrimination that we'd observe and see, same thing, um, not experience that isolation, not experience, I mean, I've learned this further along the way in terms of just the complete violations of people's most basic human rights. And by that, I talk about access to medication. So antiretrovirals in prison, which sadly, you know, 19 years on, people still aren't always getting consistent access to medication. You know, basic dignity and respect, how you're treated as a human being. Um, so I... I didn't know how, um, um, and the, the organization that enabled that was Positively Women, you know, and I was surrounded by a community of women, Angelina being one of them, um, who have been and continue to be my sources of inspiration, um, who I admire greatly. Mark, I worked with at Pos UK and had admired from afar before you landed at Positively UK. But, you know, I admire your work and you hugely. Um, Lee Neal, you know, other women who, who had gone in and provided peer support in prison. You know, my predecessors um, who actually had worse experiences than I did. Um, and so they supported me to reach a place of telling my story. And I said in the dressing room, you know, the first photo of me on one of the Positively Women magazines was the back of my head. Because, you know, the journey that happens for us is I would have a pocket of people that knew about me being in recovery. I've been, I'm now in my 20th year of recovery. Um but they didn't know about my HIV. And then I had people who knew about my HIV, but didn't know about my recovery. And I've just kept that quite personal, really, not mm. because I have any shame around it. I'm hugely proud of myself, you know. Um, I just, just took a different path, really. Um, and, and then I had, you know, most of my family didn't know. So as much as I wanted to be visible... I was juggling stuff. Mm. So I was supported, you know, 100% of the way by, um, by colleagues. Um, and then there is that flip side where I don't think I sat there and thought, well, I have no choice. Mm. It's just that the visibility or actually the invisibility of people who use drugs, who are in prison, um, is something that I feel has been very invisible in the HIV response, you know, we know that the numbers around drug users today is very low, but I personally feel like we shouldn't focus on the numbers. It's like if there's one human being, that one person, that one human being is going to benefit from support. You know, that that's how I look at it. I think numbers almost do us a disservice in, well, in our advocacy. The numbers to get high before there's a reaction. So, so yeah, um, and and. I don't, I don't want to jump to what might have been my last question, but so when Mark emailed me and asked me... <laughs> Seamless, sorry. you've done this before. I should um, get rid of this. <laughs> um, I was just like, I would fucking love to, you know, because... That was your response. Yeah, well, <laughs> I say that a lot, I'm sorry, but, you know, I do swear. Um, and... Um, because... And it wasn't about my story, it was about 
giving space and a platform to hear the experiences of those people that have gone, who've experienced, you know, prison, inca you know, incarceration, whether drug use has been part of that. It's, I was just like, yes, thank you. Can I just, just say something really quickly? And I think, I mean, what, what I want people to remember is that whilst you read out those incredibly impressive bios of all these things that we have done and WHO and the organizations that we've set up and we're CEOs and we're directors of this and that and all the rest of it. But it's two things I want people to remember is that somebody like Sophie and Angelina took their experience and worked with people on, on the ground. And I remember being in, in the office in Islington with these two <clears throat> and Sophie would go to a prison and Sophie would see a young black man who was diagnosed in prison, or Angela would see, Angelina would see a young woman. And the, we, we've been in our careers for quite a while, but we were still rooted. And I think that's really important that so many of us, and when I went back and I did the pod, when we did the podcast, so many of us did this work motivated by loss in our community by loving our community by the fact that we were impacted so this wasn't some great big like oh my god we're going to change the world it was just like fuck nobody is doing anything so i have to oh my god the organizations over here are doing okay but they're not meeting the needs of women so i'm going to do a handwritten leaflet they're not meeting the needs of black people right so i'm going to create a housing organization we've got no money we've got no people to do it but we're going to do it and I think those are the things which should drive us forward. When I look back on this journey, and I look at where we are now, it is the individual who got together with our friends. And I look at them, I can see people here who, we were also young, <laughs> and we were fighting for our lives, but we came together. And that, for me, still moves me to this day. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I think actually on that, you know, you've all shared your story so generously with me, with Mark, with now a load of people listen to the podcast, a load of people in this room as well. And I think actually, as well as the activism, by just owning your story, you give other people permission to also own theirs, to tell it in their own voice. You know, we're so used to people telling our stories for us. And I just wanted to kind of end on something more podcast related, um, because I always find with making documentaries, I've made documentaries and audio for about 15 years now, and it's always one thing to say your story out loud, but it's a total other thing to then hear yourself say it. And I just wondered what that experience was like for you guys, and if there was anything surprising, or let's not talk about anything you really hated, but what, what was that whole kind of journey like for you guys? Well, I mean, I think you saw it tonight. It's like, it doesn't matter how many years I'm removed from it, when I heard myself talking, I was catapulted back, especially to the cell. <laughs> and, and it's like, that's, that's there. It's, it's there. So, and, and I hope people don't take this the wrong way, but there's a part of me, and I think I said this to you, there was a part of me that just goes, wow. Wow. Because I know the Sophie that entered prison absolutely on the floor and how hard I've worked and the challenges, if I'm just talking about me personally, the challenges that I've faced along the way 
those intersections of being an ex-offender, an ex-drug user, HIV positive, a woman, you know, navigating the world today, I just go, wow, <laughs> you know, it's... I think we go wow as well. <laughs> Okay, I'm busy listening the, to Sophie. I completely forgot. You're in where. the zone again. <laughs> again, wow, Sophie. Of course, yeah. Like like you as well. For me, hearing me talk about that story, everything is so vivid. I I still remember the day I was told my status. I still remember how I felt. I still remember so many people uh, during that time. Um, but then what it also reminds me is the fact that we are very lucky. I actually consider myself very lucky because um, I can tell my story. And like you, Sophie, I used to be on the editorial team for the Positively Women magazine. And I used to write for the magazine and the first article I wrote was by Angie. And then a few articles down the line, it was by Angelina. And then a few issues down the line, it was by Angelina and Amoeba. And then the next issue, I was on the cover of the magazine. <laughs> so it, it was a journey. Um, but why I'm saying that is because I'm lucky I can be open about my status uh, because I have a roof over my head. I have food on my table. And if I'm hungry and I don't have any money, I can call Mark or Winnie. I'm like, you know, I'm coming over to eat. So I can do that and I can do it safely. And I had mentors from Positively Women the early days, but also my friends I have the support behind me. So if I you know, was open, said something openly and people said negative things, I have backup. But I'm acutely aware of the fact that there are very many women and other, and other gendered people who are both emotionally and economically dependent on their significant others. So for them, the difference between being open about their status is the difference between having a home or having a life. So they can do it. So, when I hear the story, when I hear the podcast, even years down the line after my diagnosis, it just reminds me that we still need to keep doing it. Uh, that's how we're going to get our voices heard. And so, yeah, it just reminds me why I'm still doing what I'm doing 25 years down the line. That's a quarter of a century. <laughs> I know, right? And I'm only 35, <laughs> right? I know, you started when you were, yeah, exactly. So I, I'm going to kind of just say a couple of things. And I think, first of all, when you make a podcast or when you make a podcast with Hannah, <laughs> you don't script stuff, right? She's just like, go out and record. And we sit in the studio and we record. And I remember when it, was, when it dropped, and I think it was Kaleidoscope, mm. the episode. And I, there, there's a bit of me talking and I say in it, you get your diagnosis. And it's like one of those Kaleidoscope things you get when you're a kid, that you look through it one day you get your diagnosis, you shake it, and you look through it again, and that's what the HIV diagnosis is like. All the colors are different. And I messaged Hannah, and I was like, did we write that in the script? She's like, no, you just said that. And I was like, oh shit, I'm good. <laughs> but what it, what it demonstrated to me was this wonderful, amazing story that I'd been given the space to share with the world. And like Sophie, like Angelina, I listened to it, and I was like, wow. So it really reminded me of this great journey that I've been on. The second thing was 
we got Malcolm Gaskill, who did the um, Tombstone advert, which was a tricky conversation, but we did it. And that then said to me, we took this to another level. So it wasn't just me talking to my mates. This is looking at the wider national context of this story. And I want to say big up to my friend Ford Hickson over there who kind of broke down the entire music there. And I'd been after him to get that for ages. Mm. So please have a listen to that episode. And then finally, it reminded me of this amazing community, fuck community, this amazing family that I am privileged and honoured to be part of. And so that 17-year-old can be reassured that he will find safety and love and comfort and joy and a future with these amazing people. So we were always here, taught me that. Great. I feel like that's a nice place to round up. Everyone's probably quite thirsty at I this do have point. one more thing oh, to okay. say. He's got one more oh, thing no, to say. No, one more thing to say. <laughs> and it's really important because you've heard from us but this would not have happened without Broccoli Productions, without Hannah, Rene, Eleanor, Rory, who was a production assistant on it, sitting with me, editing those hours and hours, sitting in the studio, Hannah coming to Brixton, an amazing team who want to amplify the voices of those that are unheard, that want to ensure that women, people of color have a voice, but not just a voice, but are in control behind the mic in production, making sure that our stories and our narratives are heard. So I am so grateful to that team. So big up. Thanks. You like preempted my thank yous. There are some people I just want to thank before everyone has many drinks that are free and a Caribbean hot and cold canapé selection, which will come round. Don't say we don't spoil you. I know no one's here for the free drinks that are here for us, but anyway, I do have to say thank you to Steph and Bishopsgate for having us. And where Steph is. And actually, I'm not sure if it was clear what we're doing here, but basically we decided, we, we interviewed 50, pe 50 plus people. There's over... 70 hours, I think it's over 100 hours of interviews. The podcast is only nine 20-minute episodes, so obviously not all of those interviews went in. Um, and we were like, what can we do with this? Because there's so many people that we interviewed whose stories are really important, but they're not, they don't exist anywhere other than this. So we've decided to donate all of that to Bishopsgate so the stories can be archived here in audio, also in transcript. Shout out Lucy and Cassandra, who have just transcribed a load of audio for the last three months. And again, so that they can, they can exist for people in the future. So people know the history and they know where they've been or, you know, where they come from to know how we got here today. So also thank you to Eleanor Bamba, marketing manager at Broccoli, whose logistical genius organized this. So thank you, Eleanor. And thank you to you three for sharing so generously, for being part of the podcast. Please go and listen to the podcast. We were always here, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you give it five stars, you get a prize and you're allowed into heaven. So that's a good incentive. Uh, thank you so much. Enjoy the drinks, enjoy the food. <laughs>